Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast downloaded over three-quarters of a million times in over 160 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jules Savage, coming to you from Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. This is episode 268 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, and in this week's episode, we talk about hiking in the Australian Alps. We hope you enjoy. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice, so that each episode is available as soon as it's published, and if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Australia is a large continent with just about every type of environment and vegetation you can imagine, ranging from coastal, forest, arid to semi-arid, and then there's our subalpine and alpine regions, which make up less than 1% of the continent. The practice of planning hikes is the same no matter where you are, however there are some specific considerations that hiking in the Australian alpine regions acquire. In this podcast episode, we look at what these are and discuss how you can overcome them. Now, the first thing we want to look at is what are we talking about when we're talking about Australia's alpine regions? Now, as we mentioned, Australia's alpine and subalpine regions only account for roughly about 1% of Australia's land mass. So what defines alpine and where is it located from an Australian perspective? When we're talking about subalpine areas, we're talking about those areas between six and 1,200 metres in New South Wales, ACT and Victoria, or if we're talking about Tasmania, between 300 and 900 metres. That's pretty low, isn't it? It is pretty low, but again, just considering what the, the terrain of Tasmania is, it's, you know, it's much further south uh, and you know, it's fairly mountainous for such a small little state. When we're talking about the alpine zone, we're talking about areas which are 1,200 metres or more above sea level in the ACT, New South Wales and Victoria, or if we're talking about Tasmania, 900 metres above sea level. One thing I would say here is that many people associate the Australian Alpine region with the Australian Alps National Parks, which are located in ACT, New South Wales and Victoria. But there are also alpine zones within Tasmania as well. But certainly when we think about the snow fields and the ski fields, which is where you're thinking about the alpine areas, the bulk of them do tend to be in mainland Australia. When you think about the world's alpine regions, so in the US, in Europe and South America and also parts of Asia, you tend to think about the big alpine mountains and in most of those Alps that are located overseas, they tend to be rock-based. So think about the big mountains, think about Everest, think about the Matterhorn in Europe. They're they're large lumps of rock. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're very tall. Yeah, large lumps of rock. But from an Australian perspective, uh, Australia's alpine regions or Australia as a continent is a much older continent. So Australia's alpine region is much lower. uh, And certainly Kosciuszko, which is our tallest mountain at 2,228 metres above sea level, um, is relatively small in comparison. And 
almost without fail, but not all of them, uh, our mountains tend to be soil covered and covered with vegetation of some sort. And it can be quite thin though. I mean, it's not necessarily deep alluvial soils. So that dictates also the kind of vegetation you'll find there. Yeah, so when you think about Kosciuszko and the, and the area surrounding Kosciuszko, which is very much above the tree line, it's pretty much grassy areas, uh, particularly as you're getting up into the higher higher regions. As you come down a bit lower, you start picking up uh, shrublands, very low-growing shrubs and, uh, and alpine uh, heathlands. But there's virtually no trees up at the highest uh, part of the Australian alpine zones. So in the past, we've done the Aussie 10, which is Australia's 10 highest named peaks, uh, and they're all above treeline. Now, these soils are, as Jill mentioned, fairly uh, shallow. They do provide an anchor for the plants, but they're also very easily damaged. Uh, So if you think about the uh, walking up to Kosciuszko, if you've ever done that before, there's two main routes that are used. One is on Management Road, coming up through uh, from uh, Charlotte Pass, and if you're coming up from Perisher, which is probably the main one up the chairlift, you've got a lot of uh, metal-based mesh walkways simply because Mount Kosciuszko pretty much is Australia's most walked trail <laughs> with roughly about 100,000 people a year summiting Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, you know, and if you imagine that on bare soil, you just end up with a huge amount of erosion. So by putting those metal boardwalks in, until you actually cut into the management trail for the last section up there at Rawson's Pass, uh, you're very much uh, on that metal mesh. And I think the other thing about those boardwalks is that they contain people. You know, they 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 do keep them on to on the boardwalks, and so your track doesn't get wider and wider and wider, which is something that we see in in other fragile and, and sensitive areas. Now, from a from a planning perspective, any hike, it doesn't matter what you do. And we, we've done a similar podcast to this one previously in relation to hiking in arid regions. And it's, I've been thinking about doing this for Australian alpine regions for quite a while. And there are some unique considerations if you've never hiked in the Australian Alps before. And we aren't just talking above treeline, which is you know, the very highest part of the Australian Alps. There are also a lot of alpine forests and 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 treed areas, which are very different. But certainly there are some considerations which if you've never been there before, you may not have may not be obvious what they are and you may not know the considerations you need to take into account to have a good hike. So we'll start looking at those, with the first one being temperature. Now, when we think about Australian Alps or Australian Alpine, we automatically think cold and you wouldn't be wrong here. Uh, I think you know, if, you, if you're talking about the highest areas in Australia, the alpine areas, uh, the temperatures aren't as high as they are much lower down. I'm sure we probably have had 40-degree days at the top of Kosciuszko, but you know, it's probably few and far between that it's ever like that. So typically that, you know, in, when it is 40 degrees in Canberra, as an example, or surrounding areas, it is much cooler in those sort of alpine areas. Yeah, it still can get warm, but not quite as hot. What we need to consider really with the alpine areas is the cold. Now, we are talking about here three-season hiking. We're not talking about the middle of winter when you're up there on snowshoes or skis. This is talking about 
really from probably around about mid-October, late October through to around about mid-April on average. Uh, there may be some snow patches, but typically we're talking about non-snow conditions. Yeah, so conditions where you will be hiking, not skiing and not snowshoeing, I guess. Having said that, though, if you are at the highest parts of the Australian alpine zones, you do really need to think about snow 12 months of the year. Now, it's not unusual to have snow in the Australian Alps uh, right through into December commonly. And we did, um, uh, about a year ago, we went up and did the new, uh, part of the new snowy alpine walk, which was Charlotte Pass to uh, Guthaga. And that walk was when we got to actually Charlotte Pass, you went across the Snowy River and there was quite heavy snow. It looked like it was wintertime. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because... One side of the the river was very much, you know, summer days and then you looked across the, the river and uh, there were piles of snow and probably a bunch of people who were walking through the snow who were very unprepared um, for those conditions, you could tell. I mean, there were some even some people who decided not to do that part of the walk um, and, and they were wearing... Uh, hiking boots, sturdy hiking boots, and they decided it was too cold for them. And then there's a whole bunch of people with, you know, something a bit better than a sandal and they're thinking that it's okay to walk through the snow. Again, if you if you look at the written version of this podcast, we've gone through and put a couple of examples in here uh, of things that you don't tend to think about. So a number of years ago, uh, we did Christmas at Krakenback and stayed there and, and did some walking around during the, the day and including doing a walk up Mount Kosciuszko on Christmas Day. We thought that seemed like a good thing to do. The maximum temperature we had on that day as we were walking up the top of Kosciuszko was 25 degrees. A few hours later, the temperature had dropped down to 6 degrees. Uh, so you mm-hmm. know, most people often don't think about the extreme ranges of temperature that you can get even in such a short period. In a few hours, yeah. And we, we, when we were coming back down, we were coming across families with very young children, you know, four- and five-year-old children, and there was one little girl who had this tiny little sundress and sandals on, and they were heading up Mount Kosciuszko, and it was six degrees. And again, I don't think the family had quite realised what the temperature was doing, and it was only going to get colder. Uh, and that's potentially, particularly with kids who tend to have a bit less tolerance of, of cold and hot, was you know, it's putting, putting kids that sort of age at risk. So when you are hiking in the Australian Alpine region, you really do need to factor in, if not snow, you do need to factor in very cold temperatures and very sharp drops in temperatures without actually realising it. So, I mean, you know, what you were saying was that we're talking about three seasons and, you know, you can get your three seasons in one day and um, I I know that's probably a disparaging thing that uh, people say about some of the capital cities in Australia, won't say which one, Um, but it's quite true in, in terms of these alpine regions. Another example of that is in February uh, this year, we went up to do the Cascade Hut Trail in Kosciuszko National Park. We were expecting poor weather conditions, so we came geared for it. Uh, But we've got a video in that. This was February, don't forget, uh, and we had snow on the day we were doing this walk at the higher parts of the walk. And this wasn't 
at the top of Kosciuszko. This was virtually at the altitude of around about Perisher, so it was a bit lower. And and while you can actually get snow, as I said, at any time of the year, February usually is the safest time for, for no snow. Oh, you know, that's pretty brave for you to say that. <laughs> And, yeah, and for me, this was the first time I'd been walking around this area for a number of years, and it's the first time we'd had these sort of conditions at this time of the year. So again, we came prepared. I mean, I, I don't hike in shorts, uh, particularly in, in uh, alpine regions, and we'll talk about why in a moment, uh, but I'm certainly glad I didn't have shorts on that day. Well, I had everything that I'd taken with me on that day. Now, we've been talking or focusing mainly on day hikes here, but if you're doing overnight hiking, particularly on that that day that we just described where you had snow, uh, you'd want to come prepared for very cold conditions and probably sub-zero temperatures at night time. So again, you know, you may not think about having to deal with minus below or below zero temperatures if you're hiking down towards sea level, particularly anywhere in Australia, I would think. But certainly in the Alps, you do have to consider those sub-zero temperatures. And as a result, you need to consider hypothermia in any month of the year in the Australian Alpine region. Yeah, absolutely. And we have been tenting in Kosciuszko National Park and, uh, you know, I've taken my warmest sleeping bag and I've been very happy that I've done that. Now that leads us on to layering. Now again, this is a consideration for any hike and you really do need to consider what hike you're doing. You know, if, if, if the nighttime temperatures in, and you, you know the nighttime temperatures are going to be 15 degrees, you probably don't need a puffy jacket. Uh, but certainly hiking in the Australian Alpine zones, you do have to cater for those extremes, not so much of heat, but of cold. Um, so there's something in here about understanding the variability of the conditions. And I think, you know, you, you have to plan for that and you have to dress for that as well. So don't just think, all right, I'm going to go on an overnight trip. I'll just take a real, I'll take a really trimmed back set of gear. I'll take a, a lightweight sleeping bag. I'll take minimal minimal clothing. As I said, you do need to cater for sub-zero temperatures even during the summer months. And you might be lucky that you don't need those things, but then again, if you don't have them, that's a pretty unlucky place to be. Now, when we talked about hiking in the arid regions in Australia, we talked about avoiding the heat. And what that meant is hiking early, getting up early, hiking early, avoiding the really hot parts of the day, and if necessary, hiking later in the day to avoid the main heat. When you're hiking in Australian alpine regions, you probably tend to be doing a bit of the opposite. You don't want to be hiking at five o'clock in the morning, uh, and you may get away with it depending on what the conditions are like, but you're probably better off going up a bit later, and usually if we drive up to do Kosciuszko, even if we're doing a couple of, a couple of days and, and camping overnight, we get up there and we start walking at about 8, 8.30 in the morning. Whereas, you know, if it was summertime, or sorry, if it was down lower altitude and in coastal areas where we don't have to worry about the cold, we may even start hiking a bit earlier than that, maybe even turn up the night before, stay somewhere and then start hiking early the next morning to avoid the excessive heat. The other thing with that also is what time of the year you're going to be doing things. So I must admit there's still a number of walks that I need or we need to do in Australian Alpine region, particularly in Kosciuszko. Uh, and one of the things with that is I tend not to do those sort of walks past around about mid-April uh, because the risk of having snow uh, is is just too great. I'd rather 
be reasonably safe and not a guarantee of having no snow conditions and, and, and doing the walks when most other people are likely to be doing the walks as well, which is outside the snow season. Now, water is another consideration in the Australian Alpine regions. Now, again, you think lots of snow, there's going to be lots of water around, but when you are up the highest mountains in Australia or the highest parts in Australia, most of the water isn't on top of the hills. So you will find that water availability isn't always as good as you might think. Now, I'll give an example here. A few years ago, I wanted to do a bit of a test out on the Australian Alps walking track. So I walked from Kyandra through to Thawa, which is the trailhead in Canberra. And what I found, that was about 112 kilometres, and I found that I was hiking in areas that I was reasonably familiar with and expecting a lot of water availability. Now, certainly in the Kyandra end of the trail where we had a couple of rivers to cross, not a problem. But I ended up getting through towards ACT, which was where I was doing most of my hiking as day hikes or a couple of overnight hikes, and finding that river sources or water sources that I was used to using almost without fail, always being water, uh, and this was in around about April, there was just no water around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I found out that I, you know, I, I was getting my water at one stage out of a drainage channel and I bypassed another source thinking, yeah, I know there's more water further on and discovered there wasn't. And I got to a point where uh, thankfully I had a filter. I was drinking out of a rural dam and the, the best way I can describe this or the consistency of the water was cow saliva. But, um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I just had no choice. You know, I'd, I'd been without water for a while and I thought I need it, but thankfully I did have that filter. But yeah, you know, if I didn't have a filter, it would be then what, which is going to be worse, drinking cow saliva or, or not drinking at all. Yeah, and if you don't, uh, if you don't believe, Tim, there's a photo of uh, his water bottle, uh, filter bottle, um, and, yeah, it's pretty disgusting. I have to say the filter worked really well. It, it was pretty clear by the time you squeezed it out the other end, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't so sure it would be that way. That's for, that's, that's for certain. So, yeah, if you're hiking in the Australian Alpine region, uh, coming out of wintertime, coming into early spring and early summer, the water is likely to be fairly good. Um, but if you get into, you know, if it's been a, a hot, dry summer, which is what we forecast for getting for the year ahead, um, you'll find that you get into autumn and a lot of those small little rivulets and water sources have actually disappeared. Now, hiking up around Kosciuszko, there's a, a couple of lakes up there which are relatively safe. I mean, Blue Lake, as an example, there's always water in there. And there's a couple of other, uh, Lake Albina and a couple of other lakes in that area where you know you're going to get water. But if you're not in that particular area, and, and I'll use as an example here, we did the Aussie 10 and the, we hiked the last night just below Ram's Head North and we were lucky because there was a very small stream, very, and I do say very small here, and it took me a long time to get a reasonable amount of water because I, you know, getting this the, the, the water into the container uh, was uh, the bottle pretty flat and it took me a long time to fill it up and to do that multiple times. So while there are water sources up there, you do need to be aware of them. And I think it's almost a matter if it is towards the end of summer into autumn, it's almost like seawater, fill your water container yeah, absolutely. up. Uh, don't assume it's going to be there. 
From here, we'll move on to UV. And this is the other thing that a lot of people really don't consider or aren't aware of. Now, when we're talking about the top of Kosciuszko and you know, even all those taller mountains or even the, in the taller mountains through Victoria, the UV levels are roughly 24 to 28% stronger. So, you know, that's, that's a fairly large whack of additional UV. So while the temperatures may not be that hot, it might be 18 to 20 degrees, the UV is extremely strong and it is so easy to get sunburn. I have seen so many people, particularly walkers as opposed to hikers doing the main range walk and doing it in tank tops and singlets <laughs> and shorts and thongs. And they get fried by the end of the day. Yeah, they're crispy by um, the end. And, yeah, and I'm, I've I've made a couple of mistakes here, and there's some there's some images there in the write up where I, I did this walk to from Guthaga to Charlotte Pass. I stupidly put a cap on uh, because the temperature wasn't too hot. Knowing better, uh, uh, I really do not use a peak cap up there. But I thought it's cloudy, it's fine, uh, and I've got this lovely white top of my head. I've got a red neck and ears, and you can even see a round semicircular patch where the gap in the hat was at the back. <laughs> uh, and I just, as I said, I knew better, but for some reason I just thought, no, a peak cap will be right. So usually I will always wear a broad-brimmed hat in the Australian Alps. Uh, I will, because I'm a pole tracking pole user, I will wear Lycra fingerless gloves. Because your hands tend to be almost in a, an upright position, You've got the backs of your hands are being exposed to the sun almost on a permanent basis. So getting the backs of your hands sunburned is really common. And they really catch the sun. Yeah. They really catch the heat. Uh, and if you are wearing shorts and short sleeves, um, I'll go into another reason why you don't do that in a moment. The, you know, you're constantly having to reapply sunscreen time after time after time. So it's just easier to wear long pants and a lightweight long sleeve top just to avoid the sunburn. And the last, the last time we were up there and uh, it, it wasn't snowing, for some reason I unzipped my pants and decided I'd wear shorts and lo and behold the, the backs of my legs got burnt, burnt, burnt. And even though I put a lot of sunscreen on and I kept applying it, it couldn't just keep up with the demand. Now for something a bit less common, I suppose, and again, I think this is one of these things that most hikers would not think about this, is lightning strike. Now, I have got a, a real interest in long-distance hiking. Uh, I'd like to do some long-distance hikes in the US. There's some hikes in Europe that I want to go through and do. And one of the things you always think about or hear about when you read about those hikes is the issue of lightning strikes. And I'll use as an example here, we tried to, we were hoping to do the GR20 a few years ago, and that's when the start of COVID hit, so we, we haven't yet, yet to make it <laughs> over there. Um, but this is um, one of the great routes, and this is GR Great Route 20, which is based in Corsica, and it goes across the spine of Corsica. And I think it's roughly around about July each year, they say you need to be stopping your hiking or to the next hut by about midday. Because without fail, you get the summer uh, thunderstorms and lightning storms mm -hmm. coming through and lightning strike is a real issue. Yeah. In the US, hiking above the tree line is considered a real danger in some parts. And again, if you see a thunder and lightning storm coming in, you may you move fairly quickly to try and get into the, through the tree line. 
but unfortunately, we tend not to be able to run or outrun thunder and lightning storms that easily. Uh, now, people tend not to think about this too much. I know people have died in Australia uh, while hiking uh, by being struck by lightning. It is not that common. Uh, really, there is um, five to ten people roughly a year that get hit by lightning each year uh, and, and quite seriously injured or even killed. And there's, an, there's another roughly another hundred who get injured by lightning. Now, a lot of these strikes are, funnily enough, or not funnily enough, but uh, uh, strangely enough, occur in do- indoors, uh, people on phones, uh, when yeah. there's a lightning storm, yeah. uh, which is something you're not supposed to do. But, yeah, certainly if you're out and about. Now, I've had a couple of instances when I've been hiking where lightning has been a consideration. So a few years ago when I was doing an overnight trip uh, up Mount Kosciuszko, and you're not allowed to camp on the summit of Kosciuszko, so I was camping near Siemens Hut, which was a, a roughly a sort of a 40, 45-minute uh, run up towards the top of the mountain. And as I was walking up from Charlotte Pass, I had this thunder and lightning storm basically chasing me, and it was coming in, it was definitely heading in my direction, and it was moving fairly quickly. So I managed to get into Siemens Hut. I stayed in there while the storm passed over away, and then when it had moved on, it left, left me a bit concerned that it was still potentially around. So even though you're supposed to uh, actually set up your tent away from Siemens Hut, uh, I camped at the side of it just to be on the safe side. I didn't want to be caught out uh, in a thunderstorm or a lightning storm uh, at um, if it had have come through again. Now, potentially you could always, you know, I could have justified sleeping inside Siemens Hut uh, because it's there for emergencies and I think being in a lightning storm above treeline is probably Counts one, as an emergency. Counts as an emergency. Uh, but again, I was happy to, once I was convinced that it had moved on, or at least if I was going to be sleeping in my tent, I could basically move very quickly inside and provide a bit of protection. I have heard of other hikers being hit by lightning or hit, uh, the ground's been hit and it's run into them. So again, there's, it's it's normally not, it's nothing in the relation to things like car accidents for the volume or the, the danger that's involved, but it is a consideration. Now, that's above tree line, uh, but what about below tree line? Jill and I, a few years ago, in fact, it was probably about five or six years ago, hiked up Mount Bimbury as a, as a multi-day walk and we got to Cotter Flat where we were setting up our tent. We put our tent up. Uh, we got inside our tent just before it started raining, and we uh, were listening to this lightning and thunderstorm coming through. And we, we were in amongst low trees, not the big trees. And the reason for that is we were listening to this storm coming through. There were no strong winds. Uh, it was just heavy rain and lightning. And we're listening, listening to a number of big trees going down. Crack, you know, just huge yeah, cracks. And these were 20 to 30 metre tall trees. Uh, a lot of them were dead trees and they're the ones that are coming down. So lightning strike is one of the biggest major causes of fire in this country. Uh, and certainly you, know, you don't want to be camping in amongst the really big trees, particularly if they are, uh, they're dead. If they look like they're not healthy, keep away from them because they, they can present a a, a strike point for lightning, and you don't want to be anywhere near if these trees do come down. Yeah, and it was the the noise was just deafening. And uh, as Tim says, we we weren't in amongst the big trees. There there were more 
sort of uh, more shrub-like um, and much softer uh, for a bit of protection. But, yeah, we, we were a bit concerned. So from here, we'll look at wildlife and vegetation. And there really are two separate areas we're talking about here, above the tree line and below the tree line. Now, when we're talking about above the tree line from a vegetation perspective, that's what we mean. There's no trees. The trees have stopped. And usually in the Australian Alps, that often means the snow gums tend to be the last trees and they tend to get shorter and shorter as you get closer to the, the edge of the tree line uh, and they tend to get more stunted and windblown. And you get uh, heath uh, predominantly from there on and the higher you go, the, the, the thinner it gets. Yeah, and you come virtually into, into grass and that's about it as you get to the, the very highest areas. Below the tree line, vegetation-wise, you're pretty much getting everything and anything. You're getting snow gums, you're getting large eucalypts, you're getting virtually anything you can imagine. Um, it tends to have, uh, even in mainland Australia, the Australian alpine regions, were, you know, to me, are very similar to the, the vegetation regions in, in Tasmania when you're in the, uh, the alpine zones. So you, you're getting that full range of big trees, small trees, ground covers and anything in between and getting good diversity of it. Where the variation tends to happen is with the wildlife. So above the tree line, lots of birds, uh, you know, certainly not cockatoos and things like that. I don't think I've ever seen a cockatoo around Kosciuszko at all, but you get lots of crows and the, the crow family. Uh, you get a lot of smaller birds around, uh, but there's a lot of uh, areas where there's no no small vegetation or vegetation for them to nest in. So they tend to be down closer to the tree area. There are smaller animals in above the tree line. The further you go below the tree line, the bigger the animals get, I guess, is probably the fair thing. More, more obvious, I guess. And once you do get below the tree line, everything is is pretty much as what you'd expect to find in the lower areas. You do get snakes, and and the only tiger snake I have ever seen on trail has been in Kosciuszko National Park below the tree line, and that surprised me. I was expecting different snakes, but not tiger snakes, but obviously this one was quite happy where it was, and there wouldn't have been the only one. Uh, but I'm used to seeing copperheads quite commonly, uh, and also even um, brown snakes in the alpine alpine zones, uh, particularly uh, towards the edge of the ACT border. So you still are getting uh, a lot of that uh, uh, the wildlife as you'd expect in lower altitudes. The other thing that uh, you will pick up again, not so much into the heavily treed areas, are horses. So introduced animal, not typically above the tree line. They tend to be below in, below the tree line. And when I did that walk from Kyandra back through to Thawa, uh, I stopped counting at 200 horses. They are everywhere. And the, the issue there is A, they're an introduced animal. Uh, and being a hoofed animal, they do a lot of damage to a fairly sensitive sort of area. So I've seen water sources in the Alps that have been trashed by horses that just run through them. Now, the in that has a couple of impacts from a hiking perspective. I'm not a fan of drinking from water sources, even if they look pristine, but particularly when you've got horses running through a lot of the water sources, uh, I do filter and I would strongly recommend filtering. The other issue is, uh, and this is something I only learned after doing that Kyandra de Thawa walk, is uh, I couldn't work out why there's all this horse poo in, <laughs> in the trail. And that's just, yeah, it wasn't off the trail, it was in the trail. 
Uh, and I talked to someone afterwards uh, that, that that knows about this sort of stuff, and they said the stallions mark their territories, uh, so you end up with these large piles of horse poo, and you are, and sometimes you've just got no choice but to walk through it. It's that that thick and heavy. So it's a consideration and it's something I just hadn't thought about before and it's something I hadn't had to deal with before. Yeah, and I guess it's probably the most obvious place to do it in a way because, you know, if there's a trail, it's reasonably clear. So um, if you're marking your territory, you want it to be obvious. Okay, now let's more let's start talking about the smaller uh, animals, I suppose, the creepy crawlies. And there's two concerns from a hiking perspective that – hikers may or may not have thought about, particularly if they're not familiar with these areas. The first and by far the most common is the march flies. Uh, <laughs> these are a biting fly. And huge biting fly. Huge biting fly. And specifically, it's the females that bite. The males of are, course it is. It's, the males are actually feeding on nectar off plants. Um, so it's the, it's the female flies. So they're intoxicated in the corner, yeah. are they? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Uh, so it's the females, and, that, and that's to do with the production of eggs and breeding that they, they decide they want the blood. Uh, and these flies have an extremely good work ethic. And again, I've shown <laughs> some photos here. There's one that's actually sitting on my leg, probing my pants. And had I have left that there for uh, uh, much longer, it would have worked its way through the material of my pants and bitten me. They are very good at finding the smallest hole as in the weaves between the fabric, and getting into clothing. I have seen them on leather boots, trying to get through leather boots. Now, if you think about horses and kangaroos, essentially that's leather, uh, but it's not the, not the sort of leather you get on boots. They're never going to get through boots, but that, that doesn't stop them from trying. Now, main range walk a number of years ago, uh, as I said, I had all these people that were wandering around in singlets and uh, shorts and thongs, and I caught up with a few of them at the end of the day that I'd seen throughout the day, and they said that was a mistake. They were just getting bitten all day. March flies do not care about DEET and insect repellent. Um, I reckon it attracts them. <laughs> um, I reckon they've learned there's a, there's a human nearby <laughs> by, the, by the smell and by, by the odour. Yeah, so really this comes back to the layering. Do not wear shorts and short sleeve tops in the Australian Alps. Now, it tends to be certain times of the year, particularly around about that December, January in particular, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, really from around about early December through to about mid to late March, yep. but you know, more so in those hotter months, uh, and they will bite you mercilessly. And for some reason, they seem to like darker colour clothing. So I remember I often wear grey coloured pants. Uh, I seem to be okay. Jill had a navy blue pair of pants on, and they were they were the they seemed to be focusing on her. Yeah, yeah, they definitely like those pants. So again, it's it's a consideration and another reason for not wearing shorts. The other creepy crawly that again most people are not aware of and do not even think about is funnel web spiders. There are funnel web spiders throughout the Australian Alpine region through the Brindabellas and, and the wider mountains. Again, I've got an image of one that I took when I was walking up Mount Bimbury. Uh, and again, I'm not a spider expert, but the males are the ones that tend to go wandering. The females tend to sit in their nests and the males go and visit. So it's not uncommon to see the males wandering around and they are the ones that have the more toxic poison. Now, 
I am not a fan of tarp camping or cowboy camping at the best of time. I like to have a screened-in area. Uh, and I've had a had a couple or heard a couple of horror stories from rangers and from people firsthand, where they it was a group of scouts in uh, ACT <laughs> that were going tarp camping in an, in an area that's fairly common for camping. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were sitting around a fire. They went back to their tents or back to their tarps, uh, and they most of them had a funnel web spider on their sleeping bags. So they actually packed up and went back to their vehicle and went home because they weren't game to actually stay out in the open, which is probably a good move. There's also a story I heard about um, pitching a tent basically on a nest. Um, yeah, that didn't go down real well either. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was a, that was a female hiker who came across in the Bibbleman track and she said she did the Australian Alps walking track and did, this was in tree, treat areas she wasn't paying attention to where she was putting a tent as far as cleaning the ground out, uh, and she said she was in her tent and this female spider was attacking the base of her tent <laughs> trying to get through. So obviously wasn't happy about having the tent put over the top of her nest. So it's it's not a consideration all over the place, but again, around the Sydney region where you've got the Sydney funnel web spider, uh, because that is in an area of high population, that's where you tend to get uh, funnel web bites. But as I said, they are throughout the Australian Alpine regions and it's something people do not think about. So as I said, I do not sleep in a tarp uh, or in a uh, uh, cowboy camping in the Australian Alpine regions. So to wrap this up, like any specific region or environment in Australia, there are a set of hiking considerations that you will apply. It doesn't matter where you are. We didn't mean to make it sound as if this was the last place that you should go. There's a lot to think about that might not be so obvious. No, and certainly from my perspective, I I do love hiking up in the Australian Alpine region. I love the Alpine region. But again, there are considerations. So from an equipment perspective, I, I almost without fail, I will hike in long sleeves and long pants. But again, in the Alpine areas, that's a definite I'll also wear the Lycra fingerless gloves. Uh, I'll also wear a broad-brimmed hat. It's this this common sense, and you only make that mistake once, although I've obviously done it more than once by uh, the, the photos that show examples of that. And even on a day hike, um, I take you know, gear for cool weather, gear for warm weather, gear for wet weather, um, and... Uh, you know, when we were doing uh, the Cascade Hut Trail, I had every bit of kit on. So I think really you're, you're talking about minor changes or minor considerations, you know, looking where you put your tent, uh, setting it up, making sure you've got a sealed tent, making sure you've got long clothing, uh, making sure you know where the water sources are. Nothing difficult, but again, it's it's the sort of thing that if you don't think about these things and think, oh, this is just like camping at home, wherever home might happen to be, this is where you might come unstuck. So do the planning, put the thought into it, and you'll have a good experience in the Australian Alpine region. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. I hope we haven't scared you off hiking the Australian Alps. As, as we've said, we really do like it. It's just a matter of considering those extra things you may not have thought about. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.